This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. A new report that's just been released by the charity Entertainment Assist, uh, conducted in conjunction with Victoria University, has shone a light on the, I guess, the rather concerning truths behind the the conversations that are sometimes had in the sector. Uh, The report is called Working in the Australian Entertainment Industry Final Report. Joining us from Entertainment Assist to talk us through some of the findings and the ramifications of those findings for the sector, the General Manager of Entertainment Assist, Susan Cooper. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Good morning. So one of the things that the report uh, has found is that the colloquial and and claimed conversations around in the sector around stress, anxiety, depression, uh, self-medication through substance abuse and so forth. These all have a basis in fact. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's been the really interesting challenge that over the years we all anecdotally uh, know someone that's gone through hard times. I may have experienced it ourselves. And I think that was interesting in understanding um, what the problem was, was first looking at had there been research into the problem. Um, what was really quite eye-opening for myself, given the size of the entertainment industry, like we're at a $1.5 billion business in Australia, let alone worldwide, there hadn't been a study looking at the impact the industry has on its workers. Um, there had been some mild Minor studies done um, on musicians in, I think, in the States, and there was the actor study done um, in Sydney this year, but nothing looking at the entire industry from performers through to support workers, you know, directors, producers, um, venue managers, and then through to techs and roadies. Um, and so this study really brought to light um, some very concerning truths. Um, and so in identifying the problem, that's going to give us half a chance to work towards a solution, obviously. And it's one of the things that certainly a report like this is really valuable for when talking to government, for example, because government needs statistics and numbers to be able to convince that there is a an issue somewhere that they then need to address. And that's very true, Richard, because that's one of the challenges. But I, I, I think six years ago I was talking to government saying, but we've got this problem. They go, well, what problem? And I said, well, doesn't you surely you've heard it, you see it in the papers, but where's the evidence? And so that certainly was one of the motivating factors for doing this particular research. Um, and it's also that kind of thing that, you know, if you've got a, st- a structured um, scenario where, you know, and the statistics are, are particularly alarming, um, that we can go in and say, look, there really is a problem. The other challenge we do have, though, is that we have a very small industry. Um, and so whilst we're talking mental health, which is a societal issue, we're actually focusing on 42,000 people, which the Australian Bureau of Statistics tells us that's who's working in our industry. Now, I know it's probably more than that, because on census night, obviously, if someone is an actor, they may put down that they are a bar attendant on that particular night. So we have interesting sort of variations there. But it is still hard sort of waving the flag for a, a small industry for what it's worth um, but very important that we do so. Now let's talk about some of the, the mm. statistics and I mentioned at the start of the show that some of the conversations we're gonna, about to have may be distressing for some people so I will give out the number for Lifeline at the end of the conversation but you can also go to lifeline.org.au if you need to but we're talking about an industry and as you said this is performers, actors, musicians, uh, backstage crew, tech crew, producers, directors etc um, and we're talking about a community in which Suicide planning is four times greater than the general population. Indicators of moderate to severe anxiety are ten times higher than the general population. And as you would then expect, there's a a flow-on effect around depression uh, and around substance abuse. So these are really genuinely alarming statistics. 
Oh, very much so. But it's it's interesting. But it's the nature of the beast. Um, and there's been sort of comment that oh, look, people probably have a propensity to you know, disorders. That's why they're in the industry. You know, it's all part of the creativity. And I'd probably dispute that. I think that anybody um, who works in an environment where um, job security um, is it's very difficult. Um, there's you know, the majority of our industry are shift workers. Um, you know, they have sleep challenges. Um, insomnia is rife. Um, so you have low pay. Um, you've got bullying, harassment, lots of competition. Everyone's lining up behind you, wanting to get the gig. And if you fall over, there's someone going to be behind you doing that. So there are a lot of stressors that are attached to this industry, which then create senses of isolation if you're touring. Um, it's also many people in the industry have trouble finding time for family and friends and certainly don't even have support networks. Um, and so those things, when you combine with our common denominator, which is passion, followed by the second common denominator, which is creativity, obviously. So we have a very passionate, creative workforce. But through creativity, you need to be sensitive. And so that's where your creativity comes. So we end up with passionate, creative, sensitive people in this insanely cutthroat environment and wonder why we have problems. And one of the challenges with that cutthroat environment is it's a disincentive to be open about your anxiety, your your depression, your mental health, uh, because you're worried that it, people may think you're flaky, unstable, and you may not get the next gig, which... Yeah. You need that gig, you need that work, particularly for if we're talking sound engineers and roadies and people going on tour. Um, they may have a family back home to support and need the constant touring to provide assistance for other family members, children, etc. So That's exactly right. And that's the, the, the big message that we have is to trying to teach our, um, our industry that it is actually okay to talk and ask for help. And that might not be to your employer, you know. It might actually be what it should be is if you can find a family friend or a, a, um, an industry peer. And one of the interesting things about the research that whilst there's all there's these terrible things happening um, and it is cutthroat and bullying and all that sort of stuff. Deep down inside, though, industry workers really want to support their peers but just don't know how to do it. And so it's really important that we actually got use that as a starting base um, and then educate. And some of the things we've been doing is looking at mental health training, um, de- you know, developing training for the industry. Uh, and in the future is to look at ways that we can educate from the front end so that people are equipped coming into the industry. And one of the interesting things, of course, we have one real funnel that everyone goes through, which is education education now because the majority of our industry are educated uh, certainly tertiary educated and so it's you know teaching at the front end that it, it that it is okay but really important for each member organization employer group to look at ways that they can create support networks uh, where we can um, you know help each other and it really is that sense of having the mental health conversation um, you know if you're unsure the first place of call is the gp you know, go and have a chat to the GP. You know, getting on a mental health plan is um, is quite important, and that's great. That that sort of subsidises um, your care treatment through Medicare. Um, and so, and and again, the first psychologist or counsellor that you referred to, just don't take that as being the only person you're ever going to talk to, because it might not be a happy marriage. You know, so it's one of those sort of things to find the right people to talk to. It's like finding the right hairdresser, or or so. the the um, I don't know any any or the right masseuse or whatever, somebody who you click with. Uh, and certainly, having gone through counsel counselling and therapy myself in the past sometimes yeah you it's not exactly shopping around but you're kind of going no i don't feel like i I can open up to you or the the we're just not clicking in the same way it's basically like going out on a date except it's somebody who's going to be looking after your brain rather than perhaps uh 
doing thing, nice things with your body. So yeah. it's the same way as like if you, you, know, you want a personal trainer. You know, you're not going to take the first one and think, oh, that's a person's horrid or whatever it is. It's whatever's right for you. And I think that's the key thing for for all of us. I mean, we do have physical health, but we also have mental health. You know, every single one of us, regardless of whether we're in this industry or not. And it is about being mindful to take care of that. And we have lots of stressors, particularly in the entertainment industry, lots and lots of stressors, and not to beat ourselves up and thinking we're the only ones that are going through challenges because we're certainly not alone in that. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Susan Cooper, the General Manager of Entertainment Assist, about the Working in the Australian Entertainment Industry final report, which has just been launched this week. Uh, where to from here, Susan? You've, I mean, this report has been a long time in the making. There's been mm. a series of face-to-face interviews and then uh, online interviews with a broad range of people. So we've had a lot of conversations leading up to the publication of the report. We will now hopefully continue that conversation about what's in the report but for you and for entertainment assist what are the the next priorities in terms of is it taking this to government sitting down and talking through some of the key findings for example that's certainly one of the options absolutely but it's i think it's really looking at um you know in a perfect world it's it's as i said educating um, workers to take care itself so that needs to happen at the front end so really looking at what are ways we can actually develop a curriculum that can be put into tertiary institutions so that people come out sort of match fit for what it's worth so it's not just concentrating on the creative um, expression and creative talents that everyone comes into the industry with, but also looking at um, the uh, resourcing people so that they're aware that uh, I've had to handle times when they're not working, handle times when they're stressed. Uh, it's certainly working with employer groups to look at um, workplace practices so that he- our mental health and wellbeing are just as important as working with lines and ladders and the bits that go with that. And then long term to look at developing um, support networks um, within the industry. One of the things we are currently doing is that we have uh, a mental health training program called Intermission which we've been rolling out and that's been proved very effective in just teaching people how to have the mental health conversation and that's the real key thing. Um, and just on that I'd like to obviously acknowledge the Pratt Foundation who have funded us all the way through this and I think that's really important that there's an organisation that's very passionate about this industry because it's a tough thing to actually fund administration for these sorts of things and I would like to uh, acknowledge and thank them very much for the, um, the amazing way they have supported this industry. If uh, you would like to download and read the Working in the Australian Entertainment Industry final report, you can go to entertainmentassist.org.au and you'll be able to find the link to download a PDF on the front page of that. As I said, the report does uh, discuss uh, issues around suicide, attempted suicide, anxiety, depression and other factors in the industry, including the fact that uh, a large number of people working in the industry would be hard-pressed to raise two grand in the case of an emergency. That's something that resonates with me and I'm sure will resonate with many other people working in the entertainment industry and the art sector more generally. Um, uh, as I said, uh, if you need to speak to a counsellor about any of the issues that we've been talking about, lifeline.org.au or 13 11 14. You can also go to beyondblue.org.au and for young people, headspace.org.au if you want to talk more about your mental health or that of your friends and colleagues. Susan Cooper, many thanks for joining us thanks in the studio you. today and thanks to you and uh, the entire team uh, at Entertainment Assistant Victoria University who've put this report together. It's very valuable and significant findings for the sector and the future. Thank you. Just remember to have heart. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And performed by my next guest, Jess Tom. Jess, welcome to Triple R. Hi. Biscuit. Hedgehog. Now, Biscuit. As people can hear... Uh, 
you have Tourette's, Let's which is, I think a lot of people don't quite know what Tourette's is. They think maybe they've seen it on Let's TV get. and they just assume people are going to swear and say rude words sporadically. Yes, Biscuit, it's one of the most uh, frequently misunderstood conditions, I think, on the planet. Biscuit, it's often associated with swearing, Biscuit, but in fact only 10% of people with Tourette's have obscene tics. I am one of them, though. Let's get Andrew Well, if, uh, if it gets sweary, we're absolutely fine. Triple R has a grown-up audience. But Biscuit, it's... Biscuit. How many times a day do you say Biscuit? Biscuit. Well, Biscuit, according to my brother-in-law, who uh, timed it for five minutes and then multiplied that by... Uh, minutes in a day 16,000 times would be the would be the average per day biscuit um but yeah we haven't we haven't recalibrated that recently so <laughs> biscuit i'm a bit less biscuity and a bit more hedgehoggy so okay. who knows <laughs> biscuit. and the show that you've presented and are performing Cat. as part of the melbourne festival backstage biscuit. in biscuit land yeah. is obviously it's a very Hedge. autobiographical piece mm. of theater yeah. but it's also biscuit. uh incredibly joyful Hedge. and rich and strange tell us about biscuit. making the show biscuit so biscuit we biscuit backstage in biscuit land grew out of some difficult biscuit experiences i had accessing theater and live performance biscuit and i went to see a show in 2011 where i was um moved to um, a sound booth during a show which was actually about segregation um, and it was a deeply upsetting and humiliating experience Biscuit um, and that was despite having done everything right having let the venue know having spoken to the performer and then having introduced me Biscuit to the audience and explained that I'd be making noises um, and in that moment as I was crying in the sound booth Biscuit I promised myself Biscuit I would never go to the theatre again um, Biscuit but thankfully that wasn't a promise I kept Biscuit and instead I was supported by friends and by family and by other creative people and organisations to see that there was a different way of approaching that. And so instead I collaborated with my co-performer Jess Mabel-Jones, who's an amazing puppeteer and actress, Biscuit, um, and with um, Matthew Poutney, the co-founder of Tourette's Hero Biscuit, and together we created a show, Biscuit, that talked about my journey with Tourette's, Biscuit, that talked about theatre itself and our passionate belief that making art accessible makes it better which is something that absolutely resonates with me the i I see a lot of theater and i like to think that theater is for everybody Mm. but then i can go into somewhere like art center melbourne or other venues and just look around and go i'm surrounded by a white middle-aged middle-class audience there are no people of color here there are no young people here Um, so there's all kinds of barriers that keep people out of theater Um, and difference and disability is another of those barriers and i think often those barriers are invisible I don't think people deliberately go out to make spaces, you know, creative spaces that do exclude people, Biscuit, but I think it's about considering difference and different ways of doing things. And I think sometimes those those invisible barriers are the ones that are hardest to challenge because unless you have that as part of Biscuit of your lived experience, you don't know it's you don't know it's there, Biscuit. And that's what we're really interested in doing, drawing attention to those, exploding those and 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 it Biscuit supporting creative to people, a biscuit audiences to see that there are different ways of doing things and that's really exciting and creatively exciting. Biscuit. Now, had, had you thought about... Horseradish. Had you performed theatre previously <laughs> before... Biscuit. Uh, now, actually, I'm going to go off on a tangent. One of the things... Horseradish! <laughs> one of the things that the show does, is it allows us to laugh, which yes. is um, I think a lot of people would be going, oh, do not laugh Horse, at the, at the things radish. that the person with Tourette's syndrome says, but kind of they your outbursts are gleeful and joyous and, and surreal and make for, for great theatre. Biscuit, and they often collide together 
really unusual ideas that would never normally sit next to each other. Biscuit, and that's yeah, that's that that is a real opportunity biscuit and one of the things that uh, really changed my way of thinking about Tourette's uh, biscuit and helped me see that my ticks were my power and not my problem was a conversation that I had um, with a friend where he described Tourette's as a crazy language generating machine and told me not doing something creative with them would be wasteful and so that's the root of you know Tourette's hero uh, biscuit as an organization is the idea that we don't want to waste the sort of the, the creative potential of ticks of opportunities um, and use them as starting points for for new ideas or pieces of work yes hello beans but yes laughter is i think a really powerful tool so pl- please laugh on cats <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first premiere backstage Edinburgh in biscuit land at uh, edinburgh fringe was it yes. a couple of years ago yes biscuit. so we we made we made it and took it to edinburgh fringe in 2014 biscuit and that had been our our goal that biscuit taking making a show and taking it to a theater audience to theater makers and to directors at one of the biggest international arts festivals was like that was our end point we had, would never have dreamed that it would go on to have the life that it has and uh, biscuit and that we'd get to tour it all around the world including coming here to australia biscuit and I think the other thing that I hadn't anticipated was the warm response that we would get from audiences and from people who are involved in the arts and that so many people would be excited by the potential of making their work more accessible. Biscuit. So within the show, Biscuit, we talk about the, a, a growing movement within UK theatre, Biscuit, for relaxed performances, which are performances that, uh, Biscuit, give everyone permission to respond naturally and relax, uh, make noise if they if they need to or move about, uh, Biscuit, and a particular particularly uh, geared up with people um, who might be neurodiverse, people who uh, might have autism or a learning disability or Tourette's or people with young children, Biscuit, people who might find it difficult to follow the usual conventions of theatre etiquette. Uh, Biscuit, but the great thing about them relaxed performances that everybody uh, benefits from watching theatre in an inclusive space and it makes it more dynamic and exciting as a result. And, I mean, get- and theatre should be for everybody. It's, I mean, the, the socio-economic kind of barriers Head. are one thing, yeah. but uh, I've been to the theatre where at interval... Uh, uh, a, a couple left with their young child because the young child was making kind of sh- squeaking and shouting and, and, and responding obviously with enjoyment to what they were seeing on stage but clearly other people in the audience were, were tut-tutting and, and making them feel unwelcome. Yeah. So that notion of uh, Art Centre Melbourne uh, two years ago I think did the first relaxed performance in yeah. Victoria um, in with uh, with opera which is not yeah. necessarily something I think of when I go what can we make accessible and open to people but I love the fact that there is that rich potential in keep the house lights up a little bit and make sure that anybody whether they're autistic whether uh, they have Tourette's like yourself whatever can come to the theatre and enjoy themselves and I think it's really uh, yeah exactly I think it's really important also that we don't think that relax performance or certain pieces of work should be made accessible because I think it can be easy to be like oh we'll just make children's shows relaxed performances or we'll just make joyful work relaxed performances I want to see work that is quiet and serious and thoughtful and rebellious and joyful. I want to see all sorts of different types of theatre um, and I should be able to see them. Biscuit. But for that to happen, there also needs to be spaces where I feel safe. And there's a difference, I think, between feeling safe 
to watch theatre because your personal characteristics aren't going to be called into question and challenging yourself to take risks in what you want to see and that that creative risk-taking I think is very different from taking risks with your personal identity or confidence. Biscuit. Hedgehog. We're talking to Jess Tom about Backstage in Biscuitland which is on as part of the Melbourne Festival. It's on at the Cooper's Malt House uh, until the 16th of October. I saw it last night. It was glorious. We're talking about toiletries. We're, pu- we're, pu- we're talking about swan porn. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about diagrams of, of, of Haribo commercials. One of the things Hedgehog I really enjoyed about the show is the way you talk us through what Tourette's is, yeah. how it uh, kind of Hedgehog. began, and uh, just, again, it, it's a notion of art Hedgehog. as education as well as art for art's sake. Hedgehog, Biscuit. Well, Biscuit, I find myself talking about Tourette's loads in any day. Biscuit, talking about um, and explaining my experience is a really important tool for having a good quality of life. In fact, having access to lots of opportunities and to give people opportunities to understand rather than make assumptions or judgments about me. Biscuit, doing that in a theatre is a really exciting space to do that because you can reach more people. You can do that in really creative ways. Biscuit, um, and increased understanding of Tourette's Biscuit and of what disability really means. Biscuit um, Biscuit has a huge power to be transformative in people's lives. Biscuit and uh, I'm really keen to sort of end the perception that disability somehow means broken and understand that um, Biscuit, the things that are disabling are in the world are non-accessible environments and uh, places where people haven't considered difference and that's something we can all change. Biscuit. Tell Cats. us a little bit about uh, Tourette's Hero, uh, your company Biscuit. and the work that it does beyond uh, presenting a show like Backstage in Biscuitland. Biscuit. Biscuit. So we co-founded, I co-founded Tourette's Hero in 2010, Biscuit, and it grew as a creative res- response to my experiences living with Tourette's. Biscuit, and we use humour and creativity to celebrate uh, the condition and share that with as wide an audience as possible. Biscuit is for people with and without ticks, uh, and our mission is to change the world uh, one tick at a time. Biscuit. Hedgehog cats, um, and we do this using um, using humour. So we there, basically there's a blog where I write about my experiences. We share the things that I've said as ticks online, and there's over biscuit six thousand real uh, Tourette's ticks that people can enjoy and use as a starting point for making uh, art or poetry or music, and they can upload that to the website and share that with other people. Uh, biscuit, and we also work with partner organisations and with other artists across disciplines. So Backstage in Biscuitland is within theatre, but we've also worked within visual arts institutions. All of our work is about challenging uh, creative uh, spaces and places to be open, accessible um, and inclusive of a really wide range of people. Biscuit. Cat. Well, I hope a really wide range of people come to Sad. see Backstage in Biscuitland at the Cooper's Malthouse in the Beckett Theatre as part of this year's Melbourne Festival. Beans. On now until the 16th of October. Uh, Go to uh, www.festival.melbourne for more details. Jess, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. And again, I really enjoyed the show last night. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Beans, cats. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, a couple of months ago, when Jonathan Holloway launched his program his, for his first Melbourne festival, uh, which is on now until the 23rd of October, one of the works that leapt out at me was a contemporary dance work on ice. Now, when I think of shows on ice, often I think of something cringeworthy, like I guess some of the Disney shows or something like that. This is 
a work called Vertical Influences that has been specifically choreographed to bring contemporary dance onto the ice rink. Uh, joining us in the studio, the, the choreographer of the work, uh, Alexandra Amel, welcome to Triple R. Hello. So why put dance on ice? Because I'm an ice skater. Uh, I've been trained as a figure skater all my life. I competed on the international scene. I skated for Disney on ice. And uh, I wanted to keep skating because it's my passion. There's nothing I like more than that. But to escape that cringeworthy show business that you were talking about, I wanted something that would be more personal, more close to my, I don't know, like... Uh, my way to imagine what an, a performance should be. Mm-hmm. One of the, the things that intrigues me about the work, uh, having not seen it yet but read some of the reviews and so forth, is when I see da- contemporary dance or even classical ballet, for example, on a large stage, the challenge is for the, for the dancer to move quickly and smoothly across a wide expanse. On ice, on ice skates, that challenge uh, must seem almost not a challenge because they can no. move so swiftly and smoothly. It's, it's the base of what we do. Uh, the, the base of ballet is the movement of the body, right? The base of contemporary ice skating is the the, the, the trajectory, the, the speed, the, those long curves, those long straight lines. So for us, our art is is uniquely based on glide. It's the fact that we can move through space without moving our body, which makes what we do uh, something like contemporary dance, but I prefer to say it's contemporary ice skating. It's its own thing. Yeah. Well, in terms then of making this your own art form and really making your mark in this way, talk to us about some of the challenges that you've faced. Have you had to strip back kind of your, your ideas, for example, to rid yourself of something that may have been part of ice skate figure skating yeah. as, as a sport for example but which has no place in the art you're trying to make well it was a long process it was an artistic process but first a personal process because uh, my colleagues and I were molded into everything that figure skating is either the competitions where the goal is to score points with standardized abilities or a show business where the goal is to sell lots of tickets for those huge arenas so you have to go very very commercial and sexy so we had to to kind of climb out of the mold and it was difficult we had to accept many things that uh, yes we were trained in that tradition but now we can go further so only that personal thing took a while and then after artistically uh, we were not very good at the beginning we tried fire breathing on the ice and we tried jumping barrels and making parkour like acrobatics and it was fun but you know it was not as good as what we do now so it took a while to to you know like go back to the bare pure skating to understand that glide was enough like the, our ability to fly through that space was enough we didn't have to do those acrobatics and everything so that took a good five years to develop that and then we were able to build vertical influences yeah which is two works i understand so we're yeah, saying it's a double, double bill. bill yeah yeah um in and in one of the the works in the bill i understand the audience will instead of being on the seating banks outside the the rink they will actually then move on to the rink itself yeah because the usual bleachers are nice of an ice rink are perfect for hockey games so you're on the side you see a goal on each side and you're above so you can see the puck 
And all our life, we were trained to perform in that context that is not made for dance or for contemporary performance. And at some point, we put a rear sole camera at the goalie position, so at one of the end, and it was just on the ice itself because we didn't have a tripod. And we saw it from this other point of view, and it was so cool. It was so impressive. The, the speed was more obvious that we decided to even if it's lots of trouble, to install those seats on the ice for the second part so that people can have a different experience, completely different from what they experience in ice shows. And even like hear the sounds of the blades more. They feel the gush of wind when we pass. And then because we go around a few times, it creates some kind of a whirlwind. whirlwind. So it's, it's a very special experience. It's more physical. It sounds uh, to me uh, that notion of immersing the audience more in the performance is something that all art forms should do, but sometimes we're often at, at, a, at arm's length or, or, or removed too far from the work so that you can't actually feel it. And it sounds in this instance that sometimes... All of the challenges I sometimes experience going to the theatre when you're kind of sitting too far back and you can't read the emotion on the actors' faces, yeah. for example, it sounds like you're overcoming those challenges. Well, it's a cool thing. Like it's challenging creating a new art form, especially uh, in buildings that are not made for art. But it's also a blank slate, and we can start afresh. And we're already working on the next show now and trying new things also so there's lots to discover in a new space with a new medium so it's very exciting it's one of the things of the the many art forms that i enjoy contemporary circus is one of them and that's yeah. a relatively young art form and that's big inspiration for us it, yeah it's, and that it's an art form that's still only 30 or 40 years old so the rules aren't set in the same way no. that the rules are for theater or for opera or or uh, ballet for example your art form is even newer so yeah. uh, you, you're literally making it up as you go along yeah, yeah, yeah. And like contemporary circus was a huge influence on us because we're from Montreal, which is some kind of a mecca for it. And it's part of the the emergence of contemporary ice skating and Le Patin Libre is linked to that. Like I remember like seeing those contemporary circus artists doing things that were so cool and so relevant and that felt like something from the 21st century with their technical skills that are not from this century. Those technical skills are from a long tradition that dates centuries. And they they made me realize that I could do the same thing with the triple axles I like to do they could be used in a more relevant way. And so we were inspired by that. And and they're more advanced than us, yes, because it's now 30, 40 years old. Uh, maybe sometime contemporary ice skating will mature uh, like contemporary circus did. But for now, it's just like a kind of young, fresh, experimental movement. It's still very experimental. Now, you've told us about Vertical, the, the second work in which the audience will be seated on the ice. Yep. Talk to us about Influences, the, the first work in the double bill. Uh, the first work uh, is slightly more, I would not say uh, narrative, but slightly more team-based. So we're really talking about something that's dear to our art, uh, about this link between the individual and its group. And uh, so you see a kind of tribe that at the beginning is almost like a little military unit forced together. And this tribe evolves into something much more organic, uh, where the, uh, the links between people are maybe softer, but more powerful. So the harmony is more beautiful. So it's this evolution that we see in Influence. And uh, I think it's, it's relevant for us because 
figure skating is almost a military domain. You know, you're forced to work in that way with those colleagues that are chosen for you. And uh, it, it, it was like a kind of visual and physical poem that was important to us. So uh, I, I really like both parts of the show. They're both very important and different. It sounds like uh, you're really breaking the mould of what people know and expect of of ice skating, of figure skating, in order yeah. to, to to forge something kind of new. And by all by all accounts, from the re the glowing reviews I've read, a five star review in the Guardian, for example, that um, uh, said vertical. Uh, it's chilly down there on the ice, but Vertical Influences is one of those rare shows I could willingly have sat through all over again. So uh, no, it, yeah, I'm, the the ice rink is in London was uh, actually very chilly, but uh, I've heard that the O'Brien was a very comfortable rink. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> to hear the that. people will like it as much as the Guardian critiques. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm certainly hoping I like it as much. I've never even been to the O'Brien uh, Group Arena. It's not the, the sexiest name for, a, for an arena, I have to say, <laughs> but the O'Brien Group Arena is the ice rink in Melbourne, down in the Docklands, uh, which is where you'll need to go if you want to see vertical influences uh, on as part of the Melbourne Festival. So the arena is at 105 Pearl River Road in the Docklands. Uh, vertical influences is running from this Saturday the 15th through until next Saturday the 22nd of October, no show on the Monday Saturdays and Sundays at 7.30 and then Tuesday through to next Saturday at 6pm and 8pm. More info at www.festival.melbourne Vertical Influences is the show I've been speaking to uh, uh, Alex Amel, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I have in the studio the OK Collective, and they're staging an art fair with a difference. It's a performance art fair rather than the more traditional let's hang lots of things on walls and have people standing around stroking their chins and going, hmm. So I am joined in the studio by Kathy Haywood and Oliver Cloak. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks, Richard. Um, so the event you're staging is happening uh, this Saturday, the yep. 15th of October, from 3pm till 8pm at Queensbridge Square on South Bank, which is that weird red boxy yeah, yeah. stage yep. thing. Yeah, that's the one. Everyone what? knows it, but they're not exactly sure that it's called Queensbridge Square. That's what it's called. Okay. What yeah. actually is it, though? Is it meant to be a stage or is it a piece yeah, of public it art? Yeah, and it gets used quite a lot. We've been down there a couple of weekends in the last couple of weeks and there are just groups of people who haven't necessarily booked the space, but they're all just lined up and they, you know, they work really well together. They're like, yeah, we'll go next. We'll go after you. There's break dances and dog trainers yeah, and all sorts. all sorts of weird stuff going on. It's it's pretty good, actually. There's and so much happening. Speaking of weird stuff, performance art. Yes, we, we're hoping to fill it with performance art. We've got 28 uh, artists doing all sorts of different things in the space. Um, but the, the interest is about this idea of interaction, which is why it's called PIC, but it's performance, interaction and collaboration. So they were uh, uh, the things that everybody had to kind of work around or with. Um, so we're really encouraging people to come down and get involved and be in part of it because that's what enlivens the work and makes it really exciting for the artists. And why have an art fair focused on performance? <laughs> why indeed, Oliver? Because Ollie, Ollie, like, okay, so I'm really introverted and he's really extroverted and Ollie really loves performance art and I like it from a distance. So a lot of the work that we do together is about finding that, that position for everyone else that kind of covers our bases as well. So the general public may not dig 
interactive artwork or may not know of a lot of performance artists. And so we've sort of figured out a way to present performance artwork because it, it doesn't really work in galleries. Um, and a lot of these artists, you know, they, they will put so much time and effort, as, as everybody does in the art scene, into putting their work into a gallery space, but it's not the right place for it, it doesn't get seen enough, um, and it needs people to be involved in it. A lot, of, a lot of these works aren't just about that artist performing something. The, art, the, the participant, the, the, the person that visits um, the public is what sets that work off when they turn up. They, they do something that's involved in that work as well. So this is as much almost an exhibition of live art as it is of, of performance yeah. art. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Why is that process of interaction, the, the, the need to have the audience there so integral to the work? The, to, for this in particular, I think we wanted to show and exhibit works that really um, worked with the public because it is such a public space mm. um, and give uh, the public an opportunity to be a part of that and get involved because there's always this kind of standoffishness towards uh, some art forms um, and so it's a, it's a, an opportunity for them to kind of be on public ground and give you know the people that are walking past and can can have a flirtation with mm. that a nice kind of you know <laughs> uh, nuanced uh, in, interaction <laughs> um, so we wanted to put it in a very public space to give that that opportunity and that's that's what I mean most of the work that we do is about Art, art is for everybody. It shouldn't be something that makes you step back or not want to step up to it and be involved in it. You know, it's very easy for us to look at paintings. Don't get me wrong, I love painting. Sometimes I wish we just did paintings and put them on walls in a gallery. But uh, uh, that's, it can be not as, not as much fun. And, and I think for us there's always that element of fun and, and a little bit of play. And it shouldn't be taken too seriously not saying that the work these people have done is not serious and they haven't put all their life and energy into it, but there is that element of playfulness and in, in being involved in it really sets that off. And you can absolutely be playful and rigorous in your practice of at course, the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of uh, the fact that peak performance interaction, collaboration, as we say, is happening in such a public space as mm. well that uh, for some people out for a, a Saturday stroll on uh, this Saturday mm. afternoon... On the South Bank. Yeah, will be they may be thinking about food and then what they're doing that night and suddenly they'll be not necessarily confronted but they will come face to face mm. with uh, an interactive performance exhibition but there's also there's elements of things that people would do in their in their daily lives so mm. we have a dj at the end who will you know we could do some dancing on a saturday night it's a very normal activity and um, we've got some speed dating as well so things that and activities that people can they have an understanding of and then they can extend that within the art form and that's that the interaction between the art artist and what the artist wants but also how the artist involves that person mm. in that interaction is really interesting for us as artists to kind of allow that kind of um nuanced play you know and uh, we've been really lucky because because we've been so generously supported by um city melbourne and australia council it, it's free so it's even it's even more important than it's in a public space because you know yes we're trying to get people to know about it but there will be so many people who will just, will just turn up, like you said, and be like, oh, what's going on here? You know, oh, I might get a little bite to eat from over there. I might go and see what that is. I might sit down here. 
Um, there's things that you can make, there's things that you can just watch, there's things that you can try, there's things that you need to do to make the artwork happen. The, there's, there's a lot of different opportunities for lots of different types of people. You don't have to be, you know, highbrow into the contemporary art scene in Melbourne, but you can be because you can take that level from the work. You could just, you know, there's stuff for kids to do, there's stuff for families to be involved with their kids. Um, there's things that the kids can do that adults will get just as much enjoyment out of. So we try to make sure that it covers as many bases as possible. And we've got artists there who will talk about their work as well, and I think that's really important for people to have that space to be able to ask questions and not feel that that's a silly thing to do because mm-hmm. the more questions you ask of an artwork, the more you're going to get out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Sorry, Richard, it's, it's, it's that... We'd, when you walk into an, an art gallery, often you're not too sure. We don't want you to be not too sure. We want you to go, oh, well, what's this? And just and just invite you to try it out. Uh, the opportunity to for people to embrace contemporary art mm. in, in a literally hands-on way in some instances yeah, yeah, is, a, is a rare opportunity to have. Yeah, Pick Performance Interaction Collaboration is happening this Saturday. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the artists who are involved and whose work people can watch and interact with. Well, we've got everything. Um, we have uh, one uh, group who will be do- playing the same song for five <laughs> hours about their headache. Yeah. Um, so they'll be giving themselves a headache. We have um, a British artist who couldn't make it, unfortunately, but she will. she's talking about hobo signs, which are signs that were used in the 20s with people travelling across America. Um, she's really interested in this idea of tourism and the signs that we use in communication. So she'll be asking you to make your own sort of signs, but in 3D, and then take photographs. Um, we have, as I said, the conceptual speed dating. Um, We've got two, two, two different sets of speed dating. So do. you can try highbrow con- conceptual text-based speed dating or you can be a little more relaxed and just get to know um, someone through Meet Thy Neighbour, which is another version of the speed dating. Which will be very exciting. We've got uh, Hayley Hoopla will be doing a hoop. She's bringing her hoop troupe and um, she'll be hooping so all the kids can get involved in the hooping and watching and excitement and there's lots of kind of music and things going on. We've got uh, Citizens Horticultural Advice Bureau, which will be... Um, Letting Citizens Horticultural <laughs> Advice Bureau. That's the yes. short version. It's a, it's a really interesting piece by it's a, great name. a lovely fellow called Andrew Rewald, um, who is interested in, and sorry, Andrew, if I get this completely wrong, um, uh, seeds and, and, and native weeds, and um, you can come along and learn about uh, plants that are native as weeds to Melbourne and um, make a little seed bomb to take home. We've also got um, people printing, so they'll be printing... It's perform print. They're, perform they're print. mad, yeah. <laughs> they're going to have an amazing time. Yeah, yeah. But you can get involved in that the printing process and understand it. Again, it's about asking questions and getting involved, and they're happy for you to take things away. Um, we've there's got... Love Song Serenades yep. by Tess. Um, there's suburb, Suburban Therapy, which is something that we did at More Art last year, which is... Um, alive and well and and there's uh three different sets of artists working on that as well so you can come down and sit and have a chat with an artist and you'll take an artwork home with you oh man there's so much more there's so many more <laughs> there's so much is there a website that we can send there people to there is a website yep. yeah there, there is. is of course there is it's so uh yeah. www.pickfair2016.com so www.pickfair 
A-I-R, pickfair2016.com. You can also go to www.okcollective.com if you want to know more about my guests and what they're doing. But it sounds like a really... I'm, I'm genuinely excited by the notion we of... We better see you there, Richard. <laughs> I'll be running... I'll try and get down there for... I'm, I, booked so many Melbourne Festival shows to see but uh, I think I can sneak off from something and and, uh, stroll down. So it's all happening as we said, down uh, at the Queensbridge Square at Southbank on that big red stage um, this Saturday, the 15th of October 3pm till 8pm and it's free. It is very free. What's the weather going to be like? Beautiful. 23! <laughs> so happy yeah. it was going to rain. Uh, it's always a risk doing something outside in Melbourne in Especially October. In October but, yeah. yeah, But uh, look, it sounds great. Congratulations on putting Thank it all you. together. Thank you so much. Uh, and I hope it's a tremendous success and uh, folks, if you're listening and you're thinking that sounds like fun, I reckon go down and check it out. It sounds like it should be a really intriguing Come afternoon hello. and evening. You can tell. We're wearing OK t-shirts. <laughs> I've been chatting with Kathy and Oliver from the OK Collective. Thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks so Thank much. You. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.